Please turn to the book of John, chapter 14, book of John, chapter 14, verse 1. Very familiar passage of scripture. In fact, it's one of the most familiar passages of scripture to a lot of people. And many people have heard this passage of scripture is used quite a bit at funerals, and rightfully so. We're going to find out, though, this passage of scripture is useful in other days besides funeral days. We will see that it applies to a lot of situations in our life, perhaps we've never thought of. It's part of the I am statements of Jesus that we've looked at for the past couple of months. Every one of the I am statements that we read throughout the book of John tells us about the person and the work of Jesus. And we need to know this. As we claim to be followers of Jesus, and as we strive to be followers of Jesus, isn't it important that we know as much about Jesus as we possibly can? And these statements reveal to us the work that he does throughout eternity and the work he seeks to do in our life. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, would you stand as the scriptures read, please? John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank you for showing us who Jesus is and what he does. And we need Jesus Christ to be made known to all of us today. We ask that you would be with each one that has come and bless them for their efforts and, and what they did to get ready to come. And I ask that you would just bless the, the church that you've built here. Make us the church you want us to be. Make us the people that we should be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus starts with a familiar condition. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Now, this word troubled means stirred, like you're stirring the water, agitated, unsettled. Now, a lot of times we read this passage of Scripture at funerals and when we're in deep grief, and we may think that this is the only time that applies. But let's say that again. The word troubled means stirred. The word troubled means unsettled, not just simply going through crushing grief. Unsettled means agitated. So that could apply to about everyone here at one time or another. It's a familiar condition. Now, we read through this passage of Scripture, and understandably so, we know that Jesus was speaking of future events. And he's trying to prepare his disciples for what was coming. He knew what was coming. 
He knew that that would crush them, that they would go through crushing grief like they had never had because they would know that he was crucified. This would come in just a few short days. He knew that they would be troubled. He knew that they would be in anguish, and he was right. He knew that after he ascended into heaven, they would be uh, charged with the task of taking the message of salvation into a hostile world, and he knew they would face persecution. He knew they would face hardship. He knew trouble was coming, and so he spoke of future events. Let not your heart be troubled at what's coming, because he knew what was coming better than they did. So he's trying to get them to look toward him now, and when troubles came, they would remember what he said. But he also spoke of present troubles. See, it wasn't the fact they would be troubled in the days ahead. These guys were troubled already. They were troubled plenty. We see that in chapter 13. Chapter 13, there's a particular passage that says this. In chapter 13, verse 22, when the disciples looked on one another perplexed about whom he spoke. King James says they looked at each other doubting about whom Jesus spoke. But the original Greek there means that they were perplexed. The word doubt here is good as well, but it's really a stronger word. Quite literally, they were at a loss. Uh, this, this hit them out of the blue to the fact that they were, they were at a loss. They didn't know what to say. Have you ever faced things that came at you to the point where you didn't even know what to say? You were at a loss. There, there, was, there were no words to describe what you needed, what, where you were going, what you, what you were facing, what you planned to do, any solutions. They were not there. What were they so perplexed about? Why were they so filled with doubt? Well, several things. First of all, they were disappointed at their own mistake. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. He knew that their hearts were troubled because of what had happened earlier. What had happened earlier, and you see verses 1 through 17, the book of John chapter 13, is this. They came to the upper room for the Passover feast. As is normally the case when you come into someone's house, especially for an event, especially for the Passover, the host of the house would have someone to wash your feet. Usually that someone was the lowest ranking employee or servant in the house. I know a lot of times we talk about servants in the house and people automatically think of slavery and that sort of thing. In the Jewish household, a lot of times Jewish household would have servants. They would have employees, people they would hire, especially people that could host an event with a lot of folks. But the lowest ranking person, the lowest ranking servant in the house, the lowest ranking employee, that's the one who got the job of washing everybody's feet. This was important because in the Middle East, of course, they wore sandals. There were very few paved roads and your feet would get dirty and it was just a courtesy to wash your guest's feet. Well, the basin was there. The towel was there. The water was there. Everybody walked in. Everybody looked at it and saw it. Nobody stepped up to do it. But that's not what I do. I'm, I'm not the lowest ranking person in this room. So nobody did it. Then Jesus 
steps up and does whatever one of those guys could have done. Jesus steps up and does what every one of those guys should have done. And it shook them up. In fact, Peter said, you, you can't wash my feet. Well, who else was going to? Nobody else did. And you see, I know that that's where a lot of trouble comes up from in our hearts. You know what causes me to lose sleep more than worry? Regret. When I think of the things I really wish I'd have done differently. And all of us have been there. I think of what I should have done and didn't do. I think of situations I wish I'd handled differently. I think of the times I really dropped the ball. You've been there? All of us have been there. And we regret it. And a lot of times we play it over and over in our minds. And we, we would just, just won't let it go, will we? And all these disciples had just had one instance where they could have done something better, they should have done something different, and they didn't do that. And you know, left them unbalanced, left them unsettled, it left them troubled, stirred. And Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. They were also disturbed with mistrust and suspicion. Later on, Verse 18 through 22, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Now, this, weren't, this was not the people on the outside of that room. He was looking around on the people inside of the room and said, one of you will betray me. Wow, what a statement. Up to that point, they had all been together. They had all traveled together. They had all eaten together. They had all labored together. They all trusted each other. And then he said, one of you will betray me. That shook them up. Now, all of a sudden, they looked at each other with distrust and suspicion. Now, have you ever been in a workplace or any situation where you couldn't really trust the people around you? You didn't know who you could depend on? You didn't know who you could trust? It's a bad feeling. And the disciples were feeling that right now. It says they looked at each other, doubting of whom he spoke. I guess they decided... Who in the world could do a thing like that? And, of course, this passage of Scripture said they never even suspected Judas. So it looks like everybody was suspect. And if you notice, of course, some of the other Gospels, they even started asking, Jesus, is it me? They couldn't even trust themselves. And that was a pretty troubling statement when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. Also, they were disturbed by the statement Jesus said he was going away. Verse 33, 36. Now, this is really troubling. Because things were so going so well. I mean, they'd only been together less than three years. Less than three years they had been together with Jesus, and that's not enough time. This is too soon. I'm not ready to let Jesus go. I'm not ready to see him leave. Where are you going, Jesus? What do you mean you're going away? Can you imagine how close and how much they needed Jesus and how much they had depended on him? And now he tells them he's going away? Shook them up. And then, 
from an exclamation point, he looked at Peter and said, you'll deny me three times. Wow, of all people, of all people, Peter came across as being the strongest and the boldest. And Jesus looked at him and said, no, Peter, you won't lay down your life for me. You'll deny me three times. These four things had just happened moments before. They were shook to the core. They were troubled. And Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Despite all this, Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. One Bible scholar said the original Greek reads this way, don't allow yourself to be intimidated by the situation. Wow. That is a refrigerator quote. Well, you know what a refrigerator quote is. Everybody has stuff stuck on your refrigerator. Yes, you do. I know everybody does. Put a magnet up there and you got things stuck on the refrigerator. Don't allow yourself to be intimidated by the situation. Wow, what a statement. How is this possible? Jesus follows it up very quickly. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He gives them a firm command. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now the word believe does not mean a one-time statement. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I'm trusting Jesus. The word there is an ongoing trust, a continual action. Keep on believing in God. Keep on believing in me. Because the first statement is of no use if the second command is not obeyed. It does very little for us to go to someone who is suffering grief, pain, or turmoil, or trouble, and say, don't worry about it, it'll be all right, unless we follow up with this, just trust in God, because if we can't trust in God, and if we're not trusting in Jesus, that first statement will never, ever happen. Let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God. Believe also in me. Scholars are kind of mixed on just exactly what frame of verb this is, whether it's just a statement or an imperative. For those of you that know English, the word imperative means it's a command. Now, Jesus could be saying, you believe in God as a statement. We also believe also in me sounds like a command. But it could also read this way. You believe in God, that's a command. And you believe also in me, that's part of the same command. You see, what Jesus is giving them, a very firm command. Trust me. Let not your heart be troubled. Trust me. It's all one. And the first one will never happen if the second one doesn't become a reality in our life. Gives us a familiar condition and a firm command, and a calming description. A calming, that they needed something to calm them. And he said this, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, we read this and we think about the calming thing, talking about many mansions. But the, the word here that really 
causes. The, the phrase here are these three words, in my father's house, four words, in my father's house. You see, Jesus described heaven as my father's house. Now, this is important because to the Jewish mindset and through the Old Testament, heaven was never really fully described in a way that was real clear to them. And so a Jewish person was never really quite clear about what heaven would be like. And Jesus clears it all out when he calls heaven my father's house. So what he does is he talks about heaven in a word that all of us could understand, one word being home. Home, but he talks about it from a child's point of view. Now, this is important because we're talking about, of course, homes where it's understood that there's love and safety and comfort. My father's house talked about home from a child's point of view. Let's turn while that's important. I know how important that is firsthand in my own life, but also in all the years that I've taken kids to church camp. And those kids who have never been away from home that first night, and they get homesick. All they can think about is home how much they love home, and they're not home, and that's not good, and they miss their parents, and I'm definitely not their parents, and that's not good, because you, you see what Jesus is doing, he's, he's describing heaven in a way they could understand, and that they cherish my father's house, that's what heaven is. You remember the story of the prodigal son? What did he think about that turned his life around? The father's house. The father's house. And you see, it's a calming description of heaven. And what this does for them is when things got tough down here and things were unsettled down here, and things were at their worst down here. He said, in my father's house, there's plenty of room. So what they would do is turn their attention to the father's house, no matter how bad it got. They knew that ultimately they would be going to the father's house and going home. That's a calming description of heaven. Then he gives them a comforting promise. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. A comforting promise. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then you're going to be with me. I'm making a place for you. I'm going ahead to make a place for you. There's a lot of comfort in that. And you see, several of the scholars, as I 
read through this passage of Scripture and looked at the Greek scholars and the Bible scholars, some of them pointed to a passage of Scripture when it says that he's going to prepare a place for us. The idea is that of a forerunner, somebody who goes before and makes a way for us and makes a place for us. In Hebrews chapter 6, if you want to read that passage of Scripture that deals with Jesus as being the forerunner, There's a real powerful exclamation point on this phrase, I'm going that where I am, you may be also. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The forerunner has entered for us. Now, the word forerunner is a Greek word, Hadromos. Quite interesting where this word is used. This word is used several times, but it's quite telling. It's a word that is used in shipping. And, and people who knew shipping knew this word. Specifically, and especially in the port of Alexandria, Egypt. One of the busiest ports and one of the most important ports in the Roman Empire. It was a busy port, quite busy, but it was tricky to get into and quite dangerous for the big grain boats. They were huge boats. It was quite dangerous for them to move around to get into port. Well, what would happen is the people in the port would send out padromos. They would send out a small boat that would go out on the open sea and encounter the big boat. And the padromos, the small boat, would go before them and show them the way through the danger to the safety of the port. So when he said, Christ is our forerunner, people knew immediately what was going on. He's the one to show us the safe and sure way to the security of the port. They, they knew that. All they had to do was follow the forerunner. Oh, but it gets even better. A lot of theology here. He says this, Jesus Christ has become our high priest forever and entered in, of course, that presence behind the veil. Here's what he was talking about. Jewish, leader, Jewish people would know this. We don't necessarily know this. But the veil separated the holiest of the holy places in the temple from everyone else. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. No one was allowed in there except for the high priest one time a year. No one was allowed in there. And the high priest would go within the veil once a year and intercede on behalf of the people. And then Jesus Christ 
is said to be our high priest who goes behind the veil. But in the same sentence, he is said to be our forerunner to make a way for us. So what he is saying is this, the high priest, the Levite high priest, went there alone and nobody was allowed to follow him in. Jesus goes into the holiest place and he says, I'm making a way for you to go so we can be together. I go to prepare a place for you to where I am. You may be also. Jesus goes in the holiest place in the presence of God Almighty and he says, you can come in. It's safe to be here. Christ goes nowhere where his people are not allowed to follow. Jesus went into the holiest place in the presence of God Almighty and we're allowed to follow into the holiest place in the presence of God. Wherever he instructs us to go, he also goes before us. But when it says that he went into the holiest of places as our forerunner, what he's saying is this, I'm going where you can have a close and personal relationship with God Almighty and be in the presence of God. Wow. The disciples had a lot to think about when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and where I go, there you may be also. And then he said this, the way you know, where I'm going you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said, uh, well, we don't know where you're going. How are we going to know the way? And Jesus gives the unmistakable proclamation. I am the way and the truth and the life. One of the most powerful of all I am statements. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I am the way. The way to the Father. The way to my Father's house. I am the way. Bible scholar John Phillips gives this illustration of how we can understand Jesus being the way. Talks about a missionary back in the 1800s. It was quite a mission effort down in Africa. And the going was tough. The going was hard. It's a long journey to get there by boat. And then when you got there, of course, uh, things were primitive as they still are today, but even more so. And the missionaries, of course, would have to get a group of other of Africans to be their bearers, the ones who would carry their stuff, but also show them where they needed to go and make the introductions to the chief in each village. And a missionary had been, had been in Africa for quite some time, and he heard of a tribe way to the north that he wanted to reach with the gospel message because all these around him he had reached with the message. Here's people that had never heard. So he wanted to go way to the north, so he got his group of bears, and they, they traveled, and they traveled to the most remote village to the north. Beyond that, the bears would not travel anymore. They just refused to go. It was too remote. It was too hostile. They just weren't going to go. So he summoned the chief of the village and said, Who can go? 
Who can go with me to reach that tribe? And the chief called a man. And the man emerged from the crowd, and he was a tall man, muscular man, had a big axe in his hand, but he was covered with scars, scars all over. He said, there's the man who can show you. So he and the man took off through the brush. The road ended, and all he could see was just a small path through the thick underbrush. And every now and then, there'd be a blaze mark on a tree. That's how they marked the path. They would just hatch it off, some of the bark off the tree. And it got to where he couldn't even see that there was a path. But this man was going through, and he was going through some very tough going. Barely a little trail through there. The blaze mark's there. Finally, he stopped and he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you sure we're going the right way? The man turned and looked him straight in the eye. And he said, you see this axe? With this axe, I made those blaze marks. I'm the one who blazed this trail. I'm the one who cut out what trail you have here. And you see these scars? These scars are because of the briars and the thick underbrush and all that it cost me to make this trail. I know the trail. And before I came this way, there was no way. I am the way. And you have to follow me or you won't get there. Jesus said, I am the way. You see these scars? Through these scars, I made the way. I made the way. I am the way. There was no way before I came this way. And without me, you won't get there. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Look at this statement in its entirety. I am the way that you should pursue. I am the life that you should live. I am the truth that you should believe. Jesus Christ, all three. We need the way. We need your truth. And we all need the life. And Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Immediately he said, and this is how, trust in God. And trust in me. As we prepare for an invitation on him, what's causing your heart to be troubled? Is it circumstance? Is it an event? Is it something perhaps we should have done different? Something we did we shouldn't do? Something we should have done that we didn't do? Is it circumstances beyond our control? Is it a spiritual issue and you know that you are not on the way and you need to get on the way to the Father's house? Jesus said, I'm that way. No man comes to the Father but through me. What's the remedy? 
Trust in God. Trust in me. You believe in God, believe also in me. There it is. There's how we get on the way. There's how we calm the troubled heart as we stand and sing. Number 109. 